listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. All right, welcome back to our show, guys. Today we have a really special guest, Daniel Amaduri. Daniel, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. So, Daniel, the first question we normally ask on the show is, why should we listen to you? So could you tell us a, you know, a brief little snapshot about your, your real estate experience? Sure. I started buying houses at age 18 started doing creative financing deals at age 19. And let's see, for the past 12 years, I've only done seller finance deals, both on the buy side and almost entirely on the sell side. Now I'm starting to sell them as a seller as financing as well. And I've just, I've been involved in all aspects of real estate. I even was a, a loan broker for a bit. One of the reasons why my my website, Future Money Trends, and my YouTube channel blew up in 09, 010 was because I accurately forecasted the collapse of Lehman Brothers and AIG, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, Countrywide Mortgage is all on record. This is all on video. So, you know, that that is one of the reasons I guess the listeners could be open-minded to listen listen to me. It's interesting you had mentioned seller financing. We'd love to hear some more about that later on in the show. About half of my portfolio is I got through seller financing. And I think that's a, a great avenue that maybe a lot of people that are interested in getting started aren't aware of and don't realize that's a, a good way to kind of break down some of the maybe credit or income barriers that they they may be facing from traditional financing. So real quick before we move on, what does your current portfolio look like? You know, it's funny. It's you've had, it's, I've never had been in a moment like this, but I'm literally selling most of my real estate. In fact, all of it, if I can, and I'm transferring and I'm kind of in a transition where I'm starting to purchase more commercial properties, larger apartment buildings. So I'm actually over the last five, six months here have been actively trying to sell all of my residential real estate, which is up until this point, that's all I purchased. I purchased up to four units, occasionally would partner with people on multi-units. But for the most part, I'm a seller right now of single families and a buyer of commercial and retail properties and, and larger multifamilies. Not because I'm trying to time the market or anything. I'm just trying, it's stage in my life where I'm just trying to consolidate everything. Less headaches, sure. So can we back up a little bit then and tell us what initially got you interested in real estate and kind of maybe how you started that transition? Maybe tell us about your first deal. Yeah, I got, I was very lucky that a mentor had come into my life. Uh, I joined martial arts at age 13. And one of the gentlemen teaching me was a real estate investor. And he was that guy who was trying to convince me to, hey, instead of buying a house, when you get older, go buy a fourplex, live in one, rent the other three out, live like a poor person until you're 30, et cetera, et cetera. And then also, coincidentally, the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad had come out. And I, I read that and I had read his other his other book, Cashflow Quadrant. And he actually had another book before that called Want to Be Rich and Happy, Don't Go to School. And so I had all these Robert Kiyosaki books, you know, as a teenager, 15, 16, 17 years old. I've got this mentor. And that's really what got me to focus on buying real estate. Funny thing is, is I, I was lucky that I wasn't told by other people that I couldn't do it at 18, you know, because a lot of people would just assume they couldn't. I had been told that by some people, but, you know, I had these very smart people like Robert Kiyosaki and this mentor telling me that, hey, you can do it. Go out and do it. Figure out you'll, you'll, you'll make it happen. Absolutely. Man, I love hearing that. Rich Dad, Poor Dad was what got me interested in real estate as well. It completely transformed, you know, the trajectory I was headed on. You know, I have a five-month-old son now and I keep telling everybody as soon as he's old enough to read, I'm going to make him read it. 
And I also love hearing that that you started out with what we call house hacking now, where you use the the low down payment owner occupied finance to buy a fourplex and, and live in it and rent out the other ones to live free and make additional income. I wasn't even made aware of that concept until a couple of weeks after I bought my first primary residence, or else I would have I would have done that instead. But I always make the joke. It's, it's a joke, but it's very true. Had I come up with that idea and done it before I bought the house, we'd be fine. But getting my wife to move out of this house into a fourplex would be a pretty hard sell. Yeah. Convincing people to do anything like that. Once it's done, it's done. It's hard to go back. (laughs) Yeah. So so how did you scale from there? What, What did you do next? I had to go to creative financing. So I had to learn about that really quick. Learned a little bit about it from Carlton Sheets. Opened up my mind to it. He was real estate infomercial guy that used to be on Sunday mornings. Everybody's, you know, who's over probably, I would say 35, 40 years old would definitely know who he is. I bought his VHS tapes and watched all of them and started doing creative financing deals. The first creative financing deal I did was at 19. I borrowed the realtor's commission up front in advance in order to use my down payment to buy the home. Still use the conventional loan, but use the realtor's commission as my down payment. And then later it got more creative and more creative. And that's how I was able to scale was by kind of opting out of using banks, which were a real pain in the butt anyway, and starting to assume people's mortgages or wraps. Eventually I started knocking on doors and going to the notice of defaults and people who were in early, early stages of foreclosure and trying to do quick deals with them. And that lasted until about 2008. And then you know, like a lot of people, it had, I had even though I predicted it on on record, I still lost a lot of money in 2008. Later, I would still go back to seller financing, but it was because I now had rec credit and then no choice, uh, and then end up specializing in foundational problems. So, what are you doing differently now than you were doing that got you in trouble before 2008? A great question. So, my focus since 2008 has been 100% on cash flow. Prior to 2008, I like many people. You know, the first few of them cash flowed, but then it was like, look, you know, first of all, I want to match my mindset. You turn 18 years old, you're 2000, you're buying your first property and real estate was, and I was buying in Southern California in the bubble cities like San Diego, and it was just going straight up. So, you know, you're a 20 year old kid thinking, Hey, every house I own is going up 10,000 a month. I'm a freaking genius. (laughs) <laughs> and um, so that's where what happened. I really confused a bubble with brains and made a ton of money and then lost a ton of money. And then the second go around from 09 essentially to today has been very conservative, not really leveraged to the hilt like I was at all. In fact, not leveraged really on a lot of them at all. And just mainly with a, with a core focus on how much income can I generate from these properties. So when you say you're not leveraged on some of them at all, you mean you you just own them outright and you let the yeah, yeah it's and it, it's it's you know it's not the smart thing to do on on paper. It's also not the smart thing to do with interest rates at three and a half percent. But after going through something that scarred me as deep as 2008 did, I I I'm like a lot of people just sleep want better to, at night. Yeah, exactly. It's the feeling of wealth. Sometimes the feeling of wealth is more valuable than a you know what the you know look. You're going to have everybody telling you, oh, if you do this over 30 years and you'll you'll have this much. But sometimes, you know, I just want the damn house paid off. I want to wake up and feel great. Sure. Absolutely. 
So can you tell us about your highlights and your lowlights a little bit? Maybe go into your, your biggest home run and then tell us one of those horror stories from 2008. Sure. So the, one of the biggest home runs I had was just getting lucky that my purchase of a primary residence in 2014, I stumbled upon foundation problems. And prior to that, I had come across foundation problems, but I would always stay away from them. I just assumed they were $50,000 problems and ran away. I do it and everybody I know does it. Yeah. And little did I know it's like a three to $5,000 problem every time because I've done dozens of them now. So it's a very minimal problem and it gets even better though. No one can buy them. So they have to go seller financed. So you, you, a conventional loan, a bank will not loan on a property with a foundation problem. So now you've got a seller who can't sell to any home buyers and a home that most investors don't even want to touch. They don't even want to look at. And it's only a $5,000 problem, which is your biggest secret. So now I can negotiate with these sellers and say, look, sign you know, the property over to me, I'll make the mortgage payments for two years and I'll fix this foundation and have it sold within less than six months or 12 months or whatever. So that's the biggest score is, is just discovering that because it's caused me to be able to buy houses for 300,000 and sell them for six. I had one recently it's bought for $175,000, almost immediately sold it for $330,000 within six weeks, all because of these small foundation problems or big foundation problems. Sometimes, sometimes we move downstairs and the upstairs pipes breaks and it costs you another three grand to fix the pipes. But bottom line, it, I, that was my biggest and best discovery. And then as far as the worst disaster, there are so many of them from the 08 crisis, but the worst one was I, took, I, I left my comfort zone. I used to stay in the $200,000 range. This time I went and bought a $500,000 house, fixed it up, listed it for $9,999 thinking I could you know, make a fortune. And again, I'm actually in my mind, I'm telling everybody on the internet, stay away from housing. And I'm sitting here like, man, I'm going to try to make as much as I can before this thing implodes. Well, the property gets listed and Bear Stearns goes under two days later and end up chasing that thing all the way down, short selling it. And to top it off, it was on Flip That House or whatever that show was, Flip This House on TLC. So here I have to watch this episode where they're showing (laughs) that I made 175 grand. But the reality is, is destroyed and wrecked myself on that deal. Oh man, that's public. <laughs> yeah. So what advice do you have for our listeners for, for anybody who's thinking about getting started or maybe somebody who's, who's waist deep and, and thinking about, you know, taking it to the next level? You know, I'll, I'll give you a great story. In 08, I lost money on, it was a disaster on all the ones that I had speculated on for appreciation I mean, to the point where some of them I had like people just moving in, like taking over the properties. And there wasn't much I could do about it because I was in California and I already had 20 fires I was trying to put out. But I had bought a duplex in Tennessee and I bought it for $120,000 in 06. By 09, it had collapsed to $65,000. However, the rent went from $1,000 to 1300 over that same time period. The cash flow actually went up, even though the price went down. Now, today, that property is back to worth whatever, 150 or whatever. But the, the moral of the story is that even in a downturn, it was a landlord's market. And if you focus on running a great landlord business, if you're going to get into investing in real estate, and I'm talking about you have to treat these properties like the Marriott would treat them. You don't, don't treat your tenants as an enemy or as somebody that needs to be avoided treat them as a customer. And if you want to be a great business like Disney or Costco or Marriott, 
you have to over deliver for your customers. And so that's how I've been able to consistently raise rent, consistently have tenants stay with me for four, five, six, seven years, because when they need something fixed, I fix it. Or when maintenance needs to be done, I've, I've never not approved a maintenance issue because it's important to treat them right and treat them like a good business owner, because that's what you are as a landlord. And just remember that in a down market, as a landlord, you can actually make even more money because all these homeowners who are foreclosing, they all come into the renter's market by the millions. So my advice was to, if you're going to become a landlord, a real estate investor, become a great landlord. Absolutely. Man, there's, a, there's so much there to unpack. So first you, you mentioned, are you based out of California? I, I am, yes. But you buy long distance? Yeah, I, I majority of all my properties are in Texas. Okay, and and I assume that's because of the 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 value to rent ratio of the property in California is typically not the best for cash flow. For sure, exactly. Which, which by the way, there's a big asterisk. The funny thing is, is if you buy a three million dollar one bedroom condo by the beach because of Airbnb and VRBO, these things actually do cash flow now. It's crazy as that it sounds. But the Airbnb is a game changer for California. Do they have any of the restrictions or coming restrictions on Airbnb in California that I hear about in other areas? Oh, we are in the land of busybodies, that's for sure. So yes, there are some cities who banned it. There are other cities who are trying to ban it. And of course, yes, California real estate comes with a lot of other baggage. You've got people, you know, trying to regulate the animals you'll have. There, there's in the city that I'm in. If you're four within four miles of the beach, you have to like do a public notice if you're going to plant a tree in your front yard. And then all the neighbors and everybody in the neighborhood gets their opinion if they want to allow you to do that. So yeah, there are some restrictions, but some cities, it's, there's none like Anaheim uh, and, and uh, San Diego areas. And man, people, you can cash flow. A house that would rent for 5000 a month, you can make twenty five grand a month off of it because of these sites. Cool. So how did you pick Texas? Well, Texas, where I lived for a while as well to capture the no income tax, Texas was a booming area, but the property still cash flowed. They still made sense. So that's why, you know, you could get them to cash flow, let's say in Memphis, Tennessee, but it, it might be an income trap. One bad lesson I've learned from investing out of state is that if the rate of return is 30% on paper, that's where it ends on paper. I have bought properties in Memphis where you have to remove the air conditioner unit while the properties are vacant because otherwise they'll shill them or wreck Absolutely. the house. So I, I learned that though I'm not focused on appreciation, it's always better to be in cash flow areas that are appreciating. Right. Absolutely. So do you, how do you feel about the property tax in Texas? Because they have no state income, but they do have higher property tax. And I've, I've heard that's kept a few people away. Is it inhibitive or is it just something you factor into your numbers? Yeah, you have to factor that into your numbers and it is big because the appreciation has been so great. However, I do think Texas is topping out on appreciation. The demand for people moving into Texas is through the roof and it's not letting up at all. However, unlike a state like Florida or let's use California as an even better example, California has a lot of green, great areas to move into on the coastline. And then once you get into the, the more like an hour away from LA County, for example, or LA City, it's very deserty. Texas is not like that. For those of you who've never been to Texas and think of it as some sort of desert, 
from the drive from San Antonio to Austin is nothing but green. And it's like a rainforest. And then from Austin to Dallas, it's green. And then from Dallas to Houston, it's green. And Houston, outside of the concrete jungle of the actual city, it's just these massive, massive pine trees. And Austin, same thing. So the, the thing with Texas is, back to my point. Stay east. <laughs> well, why I believe it's topped out on appreciation is, number one, the natives can't afford it to go any higher. It's killing the middle class. And number two is they don't have a finite good land. California, there's only so much good land. And then once you move 40 minutes or 30 minutes from the beach, it's desert. And it's just, you know, dumpy track homes. But Texas, you you could just keep going. You can go an hour north of Austin. It's still beautiful. Sure. So how do you manage the properties? Do you have, I'm assuming since you're not local, you have third-party property management? Yeah, I factor in property manager to all of them. I love property managers. I like ACHs going into my accounts. I even have my my personal assistant actually reviews anything those property managers send to me, and she knows that pretty much anything they need to fix is a yes. And if it's not over a thousand bucks, you know, I, I really don't want to hear about it. So yeah, I, I'm a big believer in using property managers. Now, you know, if you're if you're buying your first rental property, manage it yourself. But if you're, if, you know, once you get over like three or four, you, it's pro, it's more efficient to have a property manager. I'm managing 26 at the moment and I'm pulling, pulling my hair That's out. That's a full-time gig. Yeah, well, and I, and I have a full-time gig. So it's, okay. <laughs> now you mentioned you think Texas is topped out on appreciation. So where are you looking to purchase your commercial properties that you're, you're, you're aiming to get into? Yeah. So I have for the commercial properties, either buying large buildings that we can rent to high quality tenants, like a Walgreens or something, or buying, you know, anywhere from 30 to 100 unit apartment buildings. I don't have a preference. I do want to avoid smaller cities and smaller areas just for my own personal preference. You know, so I'm focusing on areas that like surrounding the Atlanta suburbs, surrounding Austin's suburbs, surrounding Los Angeles city suburbs. So it's more of uh, I just want to make sure I'm close to a major city. And how did you pick that specific number of units, 30 to 100? You know, it's really uh, along with, I invest with partners as well. So it's, it's, it's on the expertise of the people I'm working with, because I would consider myself an expert in single family homes and rental properties and flipping those type of things or renting them out. But I'm not an expert in those. So honestly, during this transition, I'm back to the beginner phase. I own a handful of apartment units with partners. And so as I partner with people in St. Louis, I'm working with those locals who have done that. So I would say if you're going to venture out into anything, especially when you get into multi-million dollar properties, definitely make sure you're with people who are not doing this their first time. And maybe it's their fifth or sixth time doing it, or maybe they've done it. You know, some of these companies I'm partnered with, they've been doing this for 60 years. Absolutely. So the the next question we typically have on our program is, is, is what's next for you. But I think you've already said what's next is these commercial properties. Did you have any, any, any other plans branching out? You know, I, I did start to do a little research on investing in farmland and I purchased some in Iowa last year. Again, I, I partnered with a group who's been doing this. So purchased some farmland and it was an interesting cash flow opportunity. What they did was we purchased the land 
And then we purchased some strategic equipment that could be used on the land, but that was where it ended. Then we found farmers to rent the land to and lease the equipment to. So though we won't make any profits from crops, we essentially have the land and we have the equipment. So we're, we're making a consistent cash flow. And historically, U.S. farmland has done very well. So there, there is some potential for some appreciation on farmland. Awesome. So next we have our radio round where we just ask three questions to help our, our listeners get to know you a little bit better. The first question is, what's your favorite book? The Laws of Success by Napoleon Hill. Uh, I, I hesitated because I almost want to say Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which is yeah. probably my favorite book. I read that. By the way, you said you have a five-month-old. Not only do I read that to the kids, but they are like experts at cash flow. We have the game. Yes. Uh, we went and bought the game. <laughs> and I've played it with my, my whole family a couple of times. And when the kids get old enough, I'm, I'm definitely planning on introducing them with the, the cash flow. It, it's a great game as well as is Monopoly as well, too. But yeah, so Laws of Success, Napoleon Hill, it's a book I try to read once a year. Awesome. Yeah, Think and Grow Rich was, was really a transformational book for me as well. I read it a few years before Rich Dad, Poor Dad, when, when I was still focusing primarily on you know, achieving success in, in the corporate world, and, and it really changed my perspective. I, I remember going through all the steps of it. it and I, and I've, I've also read The Laws of Success and Outwitting the Devil and yeah. a few other. Napoleon Hill's great. Next question is, what's your favorite quote? In order to achieve success, you must risk failure. I don't even know who said it, but it was ingrained into my brain probably when I was, I don't know, seven, eight years old. I saw it somewhere on a wall and I've just always thought that and I almost say that to myself on a daily basis. Awesome. So it was ingrained. What, what is your, uh, I guess, what is your background? Where did you grow up? You said it was ingrained at a, at a young age. Did you? You know, I, I grew up in Southern California. My father was not a real estate investor or any kind of investor, actually. He's a, a worker. Mom was a stay at home mom. You know, I, I don't know. I really don't know where I saw that, but I, I just remember seeing it. I wrote it down. You know, since I was a kid, I used to love being involved in anything entrepreneurship or self-help books, that type of thing. And just remember that I wrote it down and um, taped it up in a bathroom mirror. And I used to do these, still do actually, daily statements. I have my kids doing them as well, three kids. Absolutely. And then uh, my entire office, actually, I've, I've got different quotes painted all over it. And what's your favorite thing to do when you're not working? Anything with my kids. And I, I should also say that I never consider myself working. I uh, wake up when I'm done sleeping. I get to read about real estate investments and stock investments and venture capitalist deals. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm honestly doing my hobby. I'm having a lot of fun. But outside of that, anything with my children, any activity, I, that's where my heart is. Awesome. So next, usually I ask, where can our listeners find you? But I want to I stretch that out a little bit because I want you to kind of elaborate on these, these other businesses you have and kind of how you became a public figure and how how you, you know, got on these shows and, 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 and tell us about your website and just kind of what else you're doing outside of directly real estate. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah. I mean, I started a website on how to become financially independent before I was financially independent and just kind of blogged about it, shared the different stories my wife and I would do to save money, to invest in preservation well, and cash flow. I, I saw that on your bio and one of the, I want to hear what the craziest thing y'all did 
to save money was. People hate me for saying it though. You're going to get a bunch of nasty comments on your blog, but I'll give it to you. By the way, it's in my book, Don't Save for Retirement. You can check it out on Amazon or if you go to futuremoneytrends.com slash save, you can actually read the intro in the first chapter free. But the best savings, of course, is anybody moving, moving away from where you live, 20 minutes to a cheaper area, moving from a house to apartment, moving out of state, moving. That's always your best savings. The craziest thing, though, is that you asked, oh, I, I, I'm hesitating. I've taken so much heat over the last six months of sharing. But we got rid of our two dogs. And, um, oh, no. I know. It's, they were seven years old. They were 150 a month in medical bills, oh. plus their food. We loved them. And we, everybody, please listen. I gave them to like the most loving home ever. And they were happy when I left them. And they're, they're dead now. But they were happy. Maybe ah. I just made it worse. It is really <laughs> I'd, have, I'd have better luck getting my wife in that fourplex with the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> well, we cut, we cut everything, man. We, this was back when you, before you had Netflix streaming. We cut the cable bill. We didn't watch TV for like two years, man. It was crazy. Oh, wow. We did it. So, so how did you, I mean, your, your website and your blog have absolutely blown up and, and, and caught a credible amount of attention. How, how did you, how did you scale it? I mean, you know, it started out as a hundred percent hobby. I was doing YouTube videos every Friday and then we started the website and, you know, didn't generate any revenue for the first half of the year for the first six months of the website. And then we started generating revenue from advertisers. And then we started marketing publicly traded companies that we would ultimately invest in. First, we didn't, but now we do. Now we pretty much were venture capitalists in any, any of these publicly traded companies like cannabis or blockchain. I've always been a kind of a gold and silver bug at heart. So we also get in, involved in mining shares as well. So how, how is the cannabis investing going? It was going great, but now we're in a very, very bad bear market. I think there's going to be opportunities to buy cannabis stocks again at a great price. You, you can probably get them at a great price right now. The thing is, I just don't expect them to do very much in 2020. Got it. And what about blockchains? What's your, what's your forecast for that? You know, I've always told people, I mean, in 2013 at futuremoneytrends.com, I profiled Bitcoin at $13, or excuse me, September 2012. You know, I, I've always told their people, put 1% in, in, into Bitcoin. I don't even mess with the other ones. Just because, you know, look, it's Bitcoin is the only decentralized one. It's the one true cryptocurrency, in my opinion. The other ones are great, too. I mean, I'm, I mean, obviously, there's Dash and Ethereum and Litecoin. But I tell people, have a, have a little exposure to Bitcoin. If it becomes what everybody says could happen, then you'll make a ton of money. And if it doesn't, you'll lose 1%. Not a big deal. So one other question I wanted to ask you from from looking at your profile is uh, about college. So I went to college, I, I got a degree in finance and then I went and got an MBA and, and it's no doubt helped me through my, my corporate career, which I feel like helped me through my investing career, but I'm not completely sold on the concept. And I mean, if my children want to go to college, I'd certainly support that. But if they, if they didn't and wanted to take a more entrepreneurial avenue, I'd, I'd certainly support that as well. What are your viewpoints on, on college? Because you chose you chose not to go, correct? Yeah, I was going to say, should we talk about the dogs again? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I always didn't like conventional education. I would skip school to go to Barnes and Nobles to read the whole self help book and read Tony Robbins and all this stuff. So, not been a big fan. Certainly, if you need a government license or it's your dream to be a veterinarian, I mean, you got to go to college. 
But this idea that everybody should just go or that you need to go because you need some piece of paper, I think that myth is kind of blown up now. And since the government got heavily involved in college 12 years ago, the tuitions are just through the roof. I mean, they were already going through the roof. Now they're really through the roof. Nobody, you know, if you, if you, if you just loan money blindly to 18-year-olds, they're going to take it. So, and that's, <laughs> so I'm not an advocate for college at all. In fact, I, I tell my kids I don't think they should go. Now, I tell them the same thing I just said. If you guys want to go, go. If you want to be a veterinarian or something that, or an attorney, you got to go. You got to get that, those credentials. But I don't see any reason for most people to go. I mean, with well, YouTube and Google, I mean, we, the I, education's was, at your fingertips. I've you learned. The words right out of my mouth. The, the, the encyclopedia is Google. It's like right there. I mean, like, like I said, I have a degree in finance and an MBA with a concentration in finance, but I learned way more about finance and investing just through self-education way after I got out of school. And you retain it better at self-teaching for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. They, they don't have anything anymore. They're, the gatekeepers are, they're long dead. They have no information that we can't get for free on the internet. Absolutely. Well, awesome. I, I really enjoyed the show today. Did you have something you want to tell our listeners about where they oh, can find you? I would love for you guys to check out futuremoneytrends.com. You can subscribe and get our weekly Wealth digest or check out the intro of the book. In 2008, my wife and I were in a bankruptcy attorney's office. Never filed bankruptcy, but just that's where we were. And you can read the first intro of that book at futuremoneytrends.com slash save. Awesome. Thank you so much, Daniel. I learned a ton. I know our listeners are too. Thanks very much. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at Rent Roll Radio or at Crestworth Capital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at rentrollradio.com or sterling at crestwordcapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing. <laughs>